In Arabic, my name is pronounced Nader. Being born in America, I've always been used to it being pronounced Nader. And I'm okay with that. I'm used to it. Just as long as you're not pronouncing it as asshole and you subscribe to this YouTube channel now, then we're, we're good. There have been many books eloquently written about the true story of the plight of the Palestinian people, all of which in their own ways contribute valuable insights, lessons and observations into the conditions that Palestinians have been living in and continue to live in, not just since the creation of the Zionist State of Israel, but quite frankly, since the occupation of Palestine by the British in 1917 and the British Balfour Declaration. My guest this episode is a new author, well, not a new author, I'm sure he's authored many academic papers in the field of physics in his past life as a physics professor, but now he has become an author for the rest of us with his new book, Fugitive Dreams, which I've read with pleasure. But while reading the book, I also ran across some feelings of anger and sadness, mainly because I was able to relate to his story on a personal level as a Palestinian. Ramzi Hanhan is the author, Fugitive Dreams is the book, and I'm extremely happy to have him here on this episode of Homeland. Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Ramzi, welcome. Thank you, Nadjak, for this nice introduction. It's... Well, thank you for coming. I really appreciate you being here. Um, I know you're, you know, uh, you've been a pretty busy guy. I've been to some of, you know, I've been to one of your dis talks. I've seen you online and watched some interviews online. And as I read the book, I read the book. And as, as soon as I read it, I felt compelled to contact you because really the book hit home for me. Um, and I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you accepting the request to appear with me on this uh, episode. So welcome. Um, a little bit about your background. You have you have uh, so many, you know, interesting points of your life. Um, tell us about yourself. Okay, um, I was born in Palestine, a Palestinian child in Jerusalem. Uh, there are many people born in Jerusalem, and they could have completely different lives depending on which side of Jerusalem they're born, east or west. So I was born on the east side, the wrong side of the border. And as a result, I got stuck for my entire life with this ID card, essentially, that says I'm a Palestinian. That means in the place where I was born, in Jerusalem, I'm stuck all my life with not being able to get my full rights as a citizen in whatever country is ruling that place, or even my basic human rights, like the right to travel, the right to um, go to school, um, the right to build a house, um, the right to live wherever I want in the land in which I was born. Um, all those rights are denied. And what I wanted to do in the book is portray that from the point of view of a child, how someone born there without knowing nothing about the world, how um, 
they perceive the world as a result of growing up in a place like that, an apartheid system where you have two different sets of laws that apply to different kinds of people. So, so on the one hand, you were recognized as a Palestinian. I mean, you were born, you, you were given a, a, a Palestinian ID card. So on the one hand, it's kind of a good thing, isn't it? I mean, to be recognized as a Palestinian when so many Zionists say that Palestinians don't exist. Well, they didn't exactly call me a Palestinian. Okay. So the ID card just had a line that says religion. You have to oh. declare if you're a Christian, Muslim, or Jewish. And if you're Jewish, you get treated one way, but if you're Christian and Muslim, you get treated another way. You know, here in America, for example, there's the question of race. It's easy to discriminate against people because you can tell which race they belong to immediately. Mm -hmm. And there you cannot tell what someone's religion is. So you put it on an ID card and you basically any um, army officer or any uh, policeman could stop you anywhere and ask for your ID. And from that, they'll know um, if you're mm -hmm. Palestinian, which they call Arab, or if okay. you're a Jewish Israeli who then will get full rights. Okay. So you were born in the east eastern part of Jerusalem. Right. And and where, did you live there? Did you where's where's your family origin? Where did you end up living? Um so it, it's a um lengthy story that I discussed in the book, but they were born in another part of Palestine on the coast in cities like Ramle and Yaffa, which are now encompassed by a huge Tel Aviv. And they were kicked out of their homes, basically, in 1948. Um, they ended up in different places. Eventually, they settled in Ramallah. They built a house. They raised a family there. And... Um, so uh, that's why, you know, when I introduce myself, I always say I'm born in Jerusalem because where you're born yeah. determines a lot about your identity. You could be born in the next house and that's have a completely different life trajectory. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was born in America, so I always say I was designed in Palestine because my parents were born there but made in America. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so... In full disclosure, now you and I went to the same school in Ramallah, right? We went to the Friends Yeah, the school. Friends Boys uh, yeah. School at the time, that's what it was called. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, when I, and I don't want to jump around too much, but uh, we're going to do some jumping around in this discussion. Um, jump around as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But your, your story is you, you were born and raised in Palestine and you ended up immigrating to the United States. My story is the opposite. I was born and raised in the United States. I did go to Palestine for school for a few years, the same school. You're, you're about three years, I think three years younger than I am. So when I was 16, you were 13. We didn't have the same social circles, so to speak. No. But we were there in the, in the 80s around the same time for a few years. So I think that's pretty cool. I um, but, you know, when I read your book, I saw, even though, you know, a lot of the names have been changed, uh, characters in the book and, and uh, teachers from the same school, 
I knew who they were. And some of, some of the people, I just knew who they were. I could, oh, who's that? I actually didn't know. And this is interesting. I, I, I didn't know that, uh, there was fictitious names until I recognized the personalities and said, oh, wait, that's not his name. And then I, and then I realized, but, um, so, so I, I like to get your perspective on somebody that grew up in the same, in the same school, in the same uh, town, so to speak. I, my parents are from Elbira, uh, which is right next to Ramallah. It's pretty much the same, the same city, same city. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so you were in, you were, I'm presuming now you were in the Arabic speaking section. Of... Yeah, the, the school had two separate tracks, one for American kids who's come and stay in Ramallah for a few years. And their Arabic usually is considered not good, even though I knew some yeah. English speaking students had really good Arabic. Yeah. But maybe they couldn't read very well or so on. And so they put them in this separate track where they get more tutoring, I guess, or more one on one time with teachers. Yeah. In theory. Yeah, I was I was in the English speaking track. And I'll tell you when when we first got there in 1980, my father, uh, my father, and my my aunt, his sister, uh, her her my cousins, her kids were there with us. We all went there together that same year, and we went to the friend's school to go register. And the principal uh, asked what section we would like to be in, and my father was such. Uh, uh, a fanatic about the Arabic language. He was so into it. I mean, he read all the classical Arabic literature. Um, he complained about people in broadcasting on television that used the wrong grammar or, you know, uh, uh, made some mistakes. And so he loved the Arabic language. And so he wanted me to be in the Arabic speaking section. Now me coming from Cleveland, Ohio, I, you know, I was worried about that because how am I going to pass my classes not knowing that much Arabic? Do I have to go back a couple grades or, you know, what? Because I was in the seventh grade at the time. And uh, my cousin saved me and said, hey, we're going to fail. If you put us in Arabic speaking, we're going to fail. We promise you that. So we got into the English speaking section, which was a lot easier than how you had it, because you had to take a lot of subjects in Arabic and in English, where we only took things in English, except for an Arabic class, Arabic language class. Yeah, that was um, a lot of um, extra work for us, but it was worth it, I think, in the long run, because oh, that yeah. helps me here in my new life in the United States. Yeah, I have uh, a lot of friends. I mean, a lot of the people from my class that were in the Arabic speaking section are doing great. And honestly, I mean, to have to take chemistry in Arabic and English, um, you know, physics and Arabic and English, you're getting the same subject twice, so to speak. And, uh, we only took it once. So, uh, it, it's, it's, right. it's on so many levels. I mean, that's a really good education, especially on the Arabic speaking side. Uh, and we also had a lot more free time than you did because you had a full schedule while we had, whenever, whenever we couldn't take a class with you, we had a free period, which was pretty cool for us but you know now that i think about it i wish i i wish that uh i had uh the exposure that you had 
there, but it's a very unique system. Yeah, I think for a while they did another program where the English-speaking students on their off time would go and do some uh, farming work. So they would oh. they took a, one of the gardens in the school and they turned it into a field and the students would plant things. Oh, oh wow. And I was like, hey, I want to do that. Why <laughs> aren't they teaching us? <laughs> that's, that's uh, yeah, the... The school was very unique. It still is. It still is. Um, I visited there the last time I was there, and it has changed a little bit. Uh, well, actually, quite a lot since since I was there. As far as now, I think it's uh, boys and girls in the same school. Um, but it was nice to see. So you stayed there until when? When did you end up leaving? So I, I entered the school also in 1980. Okay. Same uh, year, and then yeah. I stayed until 1989. I was supposed to graduate in 1990, but at the end of the 87, I guess that was the middle of uh, uh, 10th grade for us. Um, and then the intifada broke out, the first intifada. And so I experienced it as a teenager. You know, I was um, maybe 14 when it started. So by the time I left, I was 16. And uh, for two years, um, most of the time during those two years, Israel closed the schools. So by order of the military governor, no Palestinian schools could be open. More than that, you can't have any secret classes. Any building used for secret educational classes is going to be destroyed. And... So we did our best to take secret classes every once in a while when we can. But when the school was open, you know, that was brief periods of time when we would go to school and just getting to school was a difficulty because there's soldiers all over the city, especially in the Manara area between Ramallah and Albiri. And with the soldiers there and I have to walk through them, you know, they could stop you, they could beat you at that time protests could erupt any moment and shooting will begin. And if you're a passerby, you could easily get caught. So what, what is it? I mean, so you were, you, during the, during the first Intifada, the uprising, you were, how old you were? 16? 14 to 16. 14, so. four, 14 to 16. Those I was a years. 14 year old kid when it started. I was a 16 year old man when it, when I, yeah. Left. What kids I mean, there grow up very quickly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I left there one year before I left in 1986. So I left a year before the Intifada. And, you know, so I, I didn't have that experience, although, you know, you have other experiences, shorter ones, much shorter of uh, curfews and protests and things of that nature, incursions, uh, which actually at the time they were there. So uh, this is pre-Oslo. Um, the what's that like for a fourteen-year-old, though? I mean, what what is it like for you and the family? I mean, we're talking about two years of not going to school, two years of a of an uprising that's going on around you. I, I think it was more difficult on the family. Uh, parents worried. I mean, I remember my dad was waiting on the patio every day for me to come back from school. 
And, you know, if I was late, he, he starts worrying and, you know, there's a, because every day it was very regular. They, uh, the Intifada settled into a rhythm of a half day, half day strike. So people work in the morning by noon, everything is supposed to be shut down. And that's the time for protests. And that's the time we left school. So every time at the time we left school, there's a protest going on in the middle between the school and the house. And so getting back home was always an adventure. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. The, uh, the, that, that experience, um, which you, I mean, the thing about your book that I found, uh, was that it's so very detailed. It's very detailed. I mean, I, I, and for me, it really, again, it hit home because, I recognized so much, you know, from living there for a six year period, it, it really brought it all back home to me. And um, you eloquently put in perspective what it's like to actually, you know, to go here and go there. And I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned, you have a character in the book, which is uh, an olive tree. Right, no fig tree. Fig Sorry, tree. it's the the fig tree, and uh, that fig tree makes an appearance in the book quite a few times, you know. Um, and and when you do that, I right away I'm thinking about you know certain aspects of my mother's house over there. My mother still lives there, and uh, you know I'm thinking, yeah, you know, we have uh, the shed in the back, which is the skifa, which was a, a, a place for. That that was really central to me because I, as a kid, I spent a lot of time there raising pigeons and chickens, and and that was my fig tree, you know, yeah. for 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 me. I mean, for you, it wasn't somebody else's land. It was, you know, um, uh, but but it, it makes its presence. Tell me about that that fig tree in the in the book. The place is very means. important, you know, because you have that connection where. Uh, that fig tree was there um, when the main character, the narrator, is a child. So he looks outside his window and he sees it. And then he's learning. He's a Christian, so he learns about Christianity from his grandmother. She reads him passages from the Bible. And there's, I think, two different parables where Jesus talks about the fig tree. And that's mentioned. And then... Later on, that fig tree get, takes a different significance. Um, the shepherd comes in and lets the goats eat the leaves, and then the old lady across the street starts yelling at the shepherd and asking him to stop doing that and <laughs> cursing him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, that lore about that fig tree is pre, you know, uh, is ancient. You can imagine a story like that going on anytime. But right. over the last 50 years, Palestine has gone through so many changes that the fig tree has aged. It's now the only um, surviving tree on that street in the only surviving lot that's not built into a tall building. And its leaves are covered with dust because of all the construction around it and so you can see that we humans are changing the landscape um, 
in, in great ways without thinking too much about other creatures or about the future or about what is it, where, where is it that we're really going? Yeah. 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 You know, the, the, uh, on my last trip, there were, I went last year to Palestine and the last time before that was 15 years prior to that. So I, I hadn't been there for 15 years. And I remember when I was, when I was a kid growing up there, you know, we have these beautiful breezes in Ramallah and Albira and that area, beautiful breezes, especially, you know, later in the day, late afternoons. And when I went there this last trip, I, I didn't feel that. I was sitting on our, our front balcony at the house, you know, with all the construction that's going around, all we got, if there was a breeze, it brought a lot of dust from all the other construction. But exactly. we hardly felt a breeze, you know. That's the only thing we got. We got a breeze of dust. And it's it's, un, it's unfortunate because uh, uh, it, it's really such a beautiful, beautiful country and, and beautiful area. Um, I wanted to ask you when, what made you decide to write this book? Um, I felt like there was something missing when I came to USA and, and, and listened to people talk about Palestine. I found a lot of misconceptions about uh, Palestine, what is going on there, um, who's doing what. Um, when I first got here, people didn't even know where is Palestine or what is it. They'll say Pakistan. Pakistan and I have yeah. to spend you know, a five-minute lecture telling them about the Middle East and Israel and uh, Bethlehem and Jesus. <laughs> And now there's more name recognition, but still people are ignorant sure. of what's really going on. And I realized that part of the problem is not that um, the other side is any better than us in getting the message across, mm -hmm. or it, it's not that they have unlimited money. It's, it's, it's not, you know, um, part of our problem is we don't tell others about what we go through. A lot of the right. stuff we go through is so systemic, so traumatic, and so long-term that we, we normalize it. We start taking it for granted. Oh, yeah, the Israelis shoot at us. Big deal. Oh, yeah, they could stop us and ask for ID. Big deal. Um, so we, we accept a lot of things and don't talk about it because we think everybody knows. But everybody who's Palestinian knows. Everybody else who's not Palestinian doesn't know unless a Palestinian tells them about it. Yeah, and yeah that's, that's true. I mean, that's, that's my um, goal in very early on, uh, early 90s. And I started documenting it. I started in 93 when the beginning of Oslo. Hmm. Um, and I knew that it's going to be a time of change. It, was a change for me. I just graduated college. Um, I went there to visit in the summer and I started taking a diary every day, keeping writing whatever happened to me. And that became the nucleus of what's chapter 10 right now in the book. Oh, okay. Okay. And then other chapters you know, I, I kept taking notes on every trip and that filled out the other chapters. And then for the childhood stuff, I went back when my daughter was born, 2010. And I tried to remember my own childhood and write about it. 
But the main um, impetus was wanting to document this for other people, for my daughter. Um, and every once in a while, um, Israel does something that strengthens my resolve to get that book published. Um, you know, uh, everybody remembers Muhammad al Dura. Yeah. And I was so shocked at that. I swore that if the last thing I ever did before I die would be to write this book, I'm going to write this book and publish it. I'm going to mention Muhammad al Dura in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Now, it's not just a documentation, though, your book. I mean, you also give some insights into, you know, you, I don't want to give too much away, but you talk about forgiveness, you, you know, or the potential for forgiveness in the book. Um, and, and where, where you see what your opinion is of maybe what should start to take place or what may be somewhat of a getting closer to a solution or, you know, how should we uh, talk about that a little bit? We're jumping to the very end. I know. Well, we're going to jump around, but you <laughs> all know. right. Um, what I'm thinking is, um, there, there's really like several messages in the end in the last two chapters. And if you'd like any time, if you'd like to go ahead and read us, uh, yeah, you know, maybe this is a good time for a reading. Just yeah, yeah, let's and, let's let's do that. Um, go so, ahead and read a section from a passage from chapter the book. Um, twenty, page three seventy. And what I want to talk about here is before even forgiveness, um, before we get to that stage, we have to start with empowerment. That means each one of us um, needs to reject victimhood and uh, think very hard and very deep um, introspectively about what is it that I'm doing to help and what is it that I'm not doing to help, what is hurting. And I'm going to come back and talk about that. But that's once you feel that you are not a victim, that you have the power to do something yourself, then you will be much more effective in getting to your goals. So this is um, what I'm going to read. Um, chapter 20 starts with um, a little thought experiment that I'm not going to um, spoil here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm going to get to the conclusion. For that reason, I reject the portrayal of Palestinians as victims. I gained strength from my experience there. I understood the universe from a vantage point few got to experience and learned compassion. Adversity is not a curse, but a school. Not to condone Israel's actions or spare it criticism, but seeing myself a victim takes me nowhere. Victimhood debilitates. A victim sees the monumental effort needed to get him out of the situation and feels it's beyond his reach, so does nothing. For my own well-being, I need to reaffirm I'm not a victim. Survivor is the wrong word either. I choose not to be defined by my traumas, 
I am far greater, deeper than that. The pain inflicted upon me by others binds me not. The same applies collectively. Generations of Palestinians defined themselves by the conflict or let themselves be defined by it. We are Palestinians because we have experienced a certain tragic history of loss and diaspora, a stigma no one else shares. We have been portrayed in various ways, refugees in a war-torn land, fighters for freedom, and now a hostage population imprisoned behind the wall. Yet, we are greater than all that. We are resourceful and resilient. Despite losing our entire country, we refuse to succumb to a life of destitution. We strove to rebuild, to work, to educate ourselves. Even in the foreign countries, we were condemned to wander. Our fate as a people never stopped us from striving for our individual dreams. Our national defeat never crushed our spirit. And I extrapolate from that position that the Israelis also have been defining themselves by their traumas, by their victimhood, by the Holocaust, by the anti-Semitism they experienced in Europe. And that's a huge driver of the conflict. That's, that's the source of all the things that are going on, both between their relationships with us and also all the ills that are internal to Israeli society itself. Um, and so part of the healing for both peoples is to reject that victimhood mentality and start looking at ourselves as individuals and as groups of people you know, how can we move forward how can we improve how can we reach peace how can we coexist and turn a page on the past let me just give you a few examples on the victimhood mm -hmm. mentality as okay. it applies not only to Palestinians, uh, but also to other activists, like pro-Palestine activists who are not necessarily Palestinian or Arab. Um, Palestine has been um, occupied for 100 years, first by the British and then by the uh, Israelis, the Zionist movement. And in that 100 years, um, it seemed like everything is going the wrong way. There was so much injustice. Um, Balfour Declaration, um, the partition resolution, everything else. So if you're empathizing with the idea that Palestinians deserve their right for self-determination and their normal human rights like everyone else, you're going to be disappointed at this uh, illusion that every point along the way, looking at the entire history for the last 100 years, there's a lot of disappointment, a lot of um, defeats. And so when, uh, if you just focus on that, mm. um, it's easy to give up. And, um, you know, when I post something on social media, a lot of the comments are really resigned comments, you know, God help them. Yeah. Why, are invoking, why are we invoking God? God created us. 
and we have hands and we have eyes and we have legs and we can do things. Um, so right, right. throwing it back on God is basically um, taking responsibility and moving it away from ourselves. And, um, you know, same thing. You know, it's, it's all America's fault. You know, America gives so much money to Israel, the U.S. could change it. Well, and, and the U.S. government, you know, it's impossible to change that policy because both parties do it. So if, if you think that it's America is, is the problem and, and, and American policy towards Israel hasn't changed for the last 40 years, it's gotten worse. So there's nothing I can do. And then mm-hmm. um, that's also a way of deferring responsibility, of giving it to someone else. And the reason we're in this mess in the first place is we deferred responsibility um, on a historic s- scale. Um, so we need to start um, as activists to think, instead of thinking about what God could do or what America could do or what um, the, the, it's Mahmoud Abbas's fault, you know, if the PA did something this or if that changed or if the Arab world united and became one country, well, forget it. The world mm-hmm. is not going to change. The reason the world is the way it is is um, there are interests that want the world to be this way because they're profiting from it. Right. Um, companies that make right. billions and billions of dollars selling weapons, um, oil interests that um, you know need control over a certain region of the world. And we can affect those interests because we are their customers. So we can make an impact to the one thing that matters to them, their bottom line. And we can do it only after we stop looking to other people for a solution and start looking within. And that requires a deep introspection. You look at your life. Well, do you drive a car? I do. Everybody in America, a lot of people do. Well, how long do you drive to work? Uh, you know, I work from home now, fortunately, thanks to yeah. a pandemic. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But um, before that, a lot of people drove 20 miles, 40 miles, 70 miles each way to work, mm-hmm. commuting every day. Well, if you drove less, that would help the environment, first of all, which is important for everybody in the world. And mm-hmm. it would also help cut dependence on oil, which would mm-hmm. ease some of the pressure on the Middle East. And then that political interest that's sending money to Israel will be less relevant. So you can really right. make a difference. But, hey, if your commute is 70 miles, that means you got to find a new job. Maybe yeah. you could carpool if, if it's shorter than that or ride your bike or something. But that mm-hmm. still involves lifestyle changes. And that's mm-hmm. why people defer the responsibility and say, well, it's America's fault, that government, whatever, that, that other party. But you, you know what's the single most effective thing you could do personally? 
the most effective? Yeah. Eat local that? and buy everything local. local if you can. Yes. You know, yes. I like bananas and tropical fruits, so I buy them occasionally. But mm-hmm. everything else could be gotten from the farm that's, you know, near where I live. And if I do that, yeah, eat, yeah, eat things in season. Right, you eat things in season. It's so much healthier. The food tastes so much better, and you cut down so much of that chain of transportation and refrigeration, all of which is very energy intensive. Right. And you remove that demand, and you you help your local community, which helps you um, in sure. the end, and then. That means ultimately that less money will be going to Israel and, and, and to oil and weapons industries. Wow. That's a, now, I never looked at it that way, but you're right. You're right. I, 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 see, your, I see your point. Every, you know, it's, a, it's like a chain reaction. And, and, Every little you know. thing you do, and you tell your friends about it, you tell your network about it. And that's how the word spreads. I learned about the, there's a program called Community Supported Agriculture in the USA. And many farms participate in it where you pay a share at the beginning of the year in January. You pay them money and then you get a fixed share of food every week in the summer or right. for the whole year if you want. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very good. Um, I heard about it from a friend by word of mouth. We like to yeah. complain about the media a lot, but um, yeah. that's why we need to support small, smaller shows like yours and make Thank an you. alternative media that speaks the truth. Right, right. You know, um, going back to the, uh, the concept of this vic- victimhood, um, I wonder if that leads to, you know, when I was younger... My parents, you know, whenever something came on the news, like there was a, a visitor that, you know, a politician that came from the U.S. or somebody or, you know, uh, somebody visited somebody. Politicians got together to discuss the Palestinian situation. There was a lot of hope. Oh, something's about to happen, you know, and and it seems to me and, and I remember so many Palestinians, especially the older generation. Abdel Nasser, everybody hung there. Yeah, you know, that something's going to happen. They wouldn't be talking unless something's going to happen here coming up soon. So, inshallah, inshallah, you know, things are going to get better. And, you know, things just got worse. So, and I wonder if that hope is like a false hope. You know, if if that has anything to do, if it's linked to... our feeling of victimization. You know? I, I, I think so, definitely. I mean, to understand that false hope and where it comes from, we have to dial the clock back to 1948. 1948, Palestine was, had a population of about one and a half million Palestinians and maybe half a million Jew, Palestinian Arabs and uh, Christians, Muslims, uh, some Jews who considered themselves Palestinians who did not support the Zionist program at the time. And about half a million Zionist immigrants from Europe who uh, many of them escaped from the Holocaust, found no other place to land except Palestine. And 
some of them came expecting they will be given uh, uh, some farm tools. And that's at least how Zionism was advertised in America and in Europe. That's how they raised money for it, is we're taking those victims of the Holocaust and shipping them back to uh, the land their ancestors left 2,000 years ago, and they're going to become farmers. And But instead mm-hmm. of giving them, um, uh, you know, farming tools, they gave them guns. As they stepped right. off the ship, here's your gun, go fight your way, earn mm-hmm. your place. And so that's the biggest lie that the biggest people who are lied to are the victims of the Holocaust who, you know, were taken advantage of and pressed into this project. So after the UN partition resolution, you had two, the partition resolution recommended two states, an Arab state with about a million people who are almost completely Christians and Muslims. And the other half has just slightly more than half the population Jewish, and the others are still Christians and Muslims. And they wanted to call that the Jewish state. And what happened in 1948 is the uh, Zionists uh, distributed between regular army units and different gangs like the Irgun um, attacked isolated Palestinian villages and some of the major cities like Yaffa and Ramle and Haifa and and Akka and evicted so many of the Palestinians that were living there, almost the majority. Um, And they even attacked some of the areas that were allocated to the Arab state and evicted their people. So overall, 800-something thousand Palestinians were turned overnight into refugees. That's about half the Palestinian population of, in all of Palestine. They lost everything they owned yeah. overnight. Um, the oldest picture I saw of my own mother, she was 16, because that's how old, that's how old she was in 1948. She didn't leave even a photo oh. album or anything else with her. Everything was left in Yaffa. And so when a whole, not just one individual, but a whole people experiences that magnitude of loss, you can imagine the feeling of victim, victimhood. And, um, but, you know, throughout Palestinian history, you had periods of um, victimhood and surrender and periods where people rejected that. The PLO was the first um, institution that, you know, was created as a rejection of that victimhood. Fatah and some of the other groups also back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the first intifada in 1980s, which I experienced, that was another expression spontaneous from my generation, from kids basically rejecting that victimhood of their parents' generation. Hmm. Every 20 years, something happens, and a new generation has to come up (laughs) and reject the victimhood of their parents. But that's good. That's that's how change happens. Yeah. Right, right. The... I I mean, you mentioned uh, your mother in in Yaffa. Uh, 
at the age of 16, what's it like for, for a kid to hear these stories from his, his or her parents growing up? The history of the family and where they were and what was taken away. What's, what's that like as a kid? It was painful to get that information in the first place. It was like pulling teeth because for my parents, that was a really traumatic um, experience, but I didn't know that. And I didn't know like how traumatic it is. So I, I want to know this. I keep asking them questions and the answers come very slowly. Um, I have a passage in the book about wanting to see my mother's house in Yaffa and my parents always mm -hmm. like telling us all sorts of stories to not take us there. Right. To not take you there. And They're the one time they take us there. there, we finally see why it's a pile of rubble. They, the, you know, after Yaffa fell down, maybe a shell hit it or something. They demolished the building. It's just an empty lot. My mother was crying. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, when I talk to my parents, now my parents, they, they weren't, you know, refugees, you know, they lived in Elbira, they, Elbira was pretty much, you know, who lived there before still has, you know, still is there now, if they didn't leave. And, um, you know, so I, I didn't hear these stories. So that, that's why I'm curious about that. I'm curious is, um, I've talked to a lot of, uh, refugees in and outside of refugee camps. And, and um, you know, I know the stories. I, I've seen the people that hold the uh, some the keys to their, their homes, even though their homes are, uh, many of them are no longer there, but they still have the key because that key is also a, like a symbol, right? Of, of holding on to going, of that hope of going on and going back uh, to to their homes, even if they don't exist, but going back to their land one day. And uh, can you can you um, did you have anything like that, like that was symbolic in your family? Something from I know that you said she left her even the photo album she left behind. But was there anything that was there in your house that was from? We had a box of past? documents, including my dad's passport and various things. I found. Cousin of mine found my grandfather's passport. And grandfather's passport had a visa from Lebanon in April something, 1948. So May 7, fell. that was taken from the Lebanese embassy in Yaffa or consulate or something okay. in Yaffa, like days before Yaffa fell. Wow. And it was a one-month visa. Nobody was expecting they would stay for, you know, 75 years as refugees. Yeah. He was going to Lebanon to escape the shelling that Yaffa was experiencing at the time. Mm. Mm. Do you have uh, any relatives that were in, other relatives that were in refugee camps Outside um, of Palestine? I didn't know any, like, I, I'm not aware of any relatives actually in a refugee camp, although some might have stayed, like, temporarily. Um, mm -hmm. The camps are a very transitional place. But, I mean, I grew up sure. two blocks away from a refugee camp. And, yeah. um, you know, 
sometimes uh, as a roundabout way of getting to school, we, we go through the refugee camp, um, especially during the Antifada when the main streets were all patrolled by the soldiers. Yeah. So yeah. It, there was, you know, there, it, it was always like if you're a Palestinian, um, you have always this thing hanging on your head. I could have been in the refugee camp. So even if you didn't, never lived in a refugee camp, it's there in your head, in your, sure. you know, you have friends who live there, you know, people mm -hmm. there. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, because um, I'm, I'm, we're going to have a discussion in, a, in another episode of a Palestinian who is from, uh, who came from the Yarmouk refugee camp in Syria but who has relatives in other refugee camps in Lebanon. And so, you know, I'm always curious as to um, uh, what it's like to be separated from family, you know, and, and that's why I asked if, if there's anybody in outside that uh, from 1948, if there were any relatives that were just separated where you could, could Do you not, remember you know, the radio shows from the 1980s when Back then, if you're in, in Palestine, it's completely occupied by Israel, so you cannot talk to anyone else in the Arab countries by phone. So people sent messages across the radio shows. They would dial in at a yes. certain time to Israel's radio, and Israel's radio would broadcast some personal messages, and then people in Jordan, mm. your relatives, would be listening to that show, waiting to hear from you. And then yeah, uh, another yeah. time of day, the Jordanian station starts sending messages. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I do remember that. I remember that. I remember, and I, you know, I didn't listen to much Arabic radio, but I remember hearing it, uh, you know, from my father's, uh, you know, study in the house when he would be listening to the radio, or even in the in the taxis yeah. when you're in the taxi, you would, you would hear that. that that's probably. Where I heard it the most. Everybody I do remember that. to that because that's the only way they could communicate with their relatives. I want people to know what it's like for the Palestinian child that has to live under occupation, limited by uh, uh, travel for two years. Lim you know, um, uh, they tried to limit an education during the first Intifada. I mean, what does that do to a you know, and, and the Palestinian people are very resilient, you know, from, from my experience, very resilient people. But still, I mean, on the psyche of a child, on, a, on generations, because we're talking about more than one generation now that has gone through uh, this, this occupation and apartheid. What does that do to a child that has to live under this? Um, yeah, I... You know, I wrote some something about the lack of opportunity that you see there. So even books, I could not find any decent book about Palestine because you were not allowed to, to write the word Palestine. You were not to put the colors of the flag. So I had mm -hmm. a bunch of clandestine books that were hidden in my dad's thing. And most of them were from before 1967. The West mm. Bank was part of Jordan. Um, mm. 
So for 20 years, we were cut off from the rest of the world at that time. Now, Palestine has been even more cut off, except maybe the internet has brought some connect- connection to the outside world. Sure. Um, but back then, there was... I wish we had internet back then. Yeah, I yeah, wish we had that. There was I nothing. Think, uh, you know, we would have been a little bit more we were very isolated. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I now look at my daughter going to school and what her school is like and how much opportunities she has to be whatever she wants. And back then was, you know, mm-hmm. you hear the word you can't more than the word you can. And that's a very damaging thing to do to a kid. Is you can't do this, you can't do you can't be a pilot. Palestine doesn't have an airline. You can't be this, you can't be a policeman, you can't be that. And mm-hmm. everything was forbidden to us. Right, right. Um, either occupationally yeah. or there's no resources or you know, the the library had the most of the books in the public library were from the fifties when I was a kid there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. um I hope that that changes, and I, I know it's changing, and I know people from my generation who are actually doing something about it and working hard to build museums and other institutions and so on. Um, and on top of that, there's the conflict. You know, you can't even go to school without seeing Israeli soldiers or uh, encountering a wall or, 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 or something. Um, so yeah. there's all the yeah. violence that's superimposed on top of this lack of opportunity and imprisonment and and, and um, um, there's so much psychological stress that a kid growing up in Palestine experiences. Yeah, when we were when we were there, you and I, we were there in the '80s, uh, and it was fairly easy to go to Jerusalem. There was no uh, separation wall. It was fairly easy to go to Jerusalem. And, you know, one of the things I found uh, that is a little strange for me when I went back the last trip and I, and I, when you see these kids in front of you and none of them have ever been to Jerusalem. And that was, you know, something I'm not used to because, you know, everybody was going to not just Jerusalem, but, to Elat, and I mean, as far south as Elat, you know, you go, maybe there's a couple checkpoints on the way, but, you know, there was no separation wall, and people went to wherever they went to, and and I used to ride my bike, my bike from Elbira to wow. Jerusalem. We would go, me and my friends, and we would ride our bikes. It would take us some time. We would stop in Beit Hanina. Um, I had a friend in Beit Hanina. He would get on his bike and join us the rest of the way to uh, the Damascus Gate. And we would ride back. We wouldn't stay there that long. We would just ride back. We'd say, we want to ride to Jerusalem, you know. Or we would want to ride to, now it's even difficult to do that to Birzeit, which is very, fairly, you know, close, uh, but, you know, without these checkpoints. Um, so that's one thing that struck me when I was there um, was that it was a reminder. I always knew about the, the wall, but it was a reminder that these kids, when you see them in front of you, you say, you've never seen Jerusalem, really? And they're not, they're just not allowed. And, uh, you know, I, I like to point that out because, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, you know, this is not. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's two, there's two consequences of that. One of them is, um, Israel is trying to do this in particular to 
weaken our connection with Jerusalem. They don't want us visiting there. Mm-hmm. And the less time our children are spending in Jerusalem, the less attached to the city Israel hopes uh, they, they would yeah. be. And that's a fallacy because Palestine, you know, there's refugees who grew up completely in refugee camps in Lebanon who are so attached to Palestine and know which village their parents came from and, and they can describe the village. And we always carry Palestine with us. And of course. Jerusalem. But the other reason for putting up those walls is to separate the people. So if you remember from the 80s when we were children, we would go to Jerusalem. We would even go to West Jerusalem. We would go to um, yeah. Israeli stores. They would know us. We would talk to them. They would mm-hmm. know us by name. Mm-hmm. Um, you know people as human beings. Mm-hmm. People come to Ramallah and then shop from, uh, you know, even from the settlements. We had settlers come on Saturday to Ramallah yeah. to shop. And yeah. that changed. Uh, with the walls, people don't see each other except at points of conflict, at the checkpoints where they treat us badly and they're checking IDs and they're wearing uniforms and um, exerting their authority over us, trying to show us that if we want to go through from point A to point B, we need their approval. That's what a checkpoint is. Right. And... Exactly. Uh, and, and then at the same time, uh, or, you know, at points of conflict where there's a protest and, uh, you know, kids are throwing stones at soldiers, so soldiers are shooting back. And so the, or now it's, uh, you know, so people see each other only as combatants. Whether you're Israeli or Palestinian, you only see the other side as an enemy, as a combatant because of that wall. Seeing them as human beings yeah. is no longer even possible because you cannot see them outside of uniform if they don't give you that permit to go and visit their cities. Right. And that, in my opinion, explains yeah. a lot about why uh, the situation in Palestine has gotten so much more violent over the last 20 years. What changed mm. in the last 20 years? The wall. The wall. Right, right. And it also, it's uh, not just a separation of location or a denial of, you know, travel, but it's, I mean, even your own people on the other side of that wall, you you never see them again. So, you know, Jerusalemites, Palestinians who live in Jerusalem or in the 1948 uh, lands, you know, I mean, we don't, we don't know each other. Right. I mean, the people in the West Bank, it's not just getting to know other cultures, but within your yeah. own. You, oh, I mean, you know, I mean, even didn't they just ban marriage between like Palestinians in the West Bank, basically, and Palestinians in Israel who have Israeli citizenship? Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know where that landed. Exactly. Yeah, or, I don't know if it's still yeah. like in process. Well, I mean, even or, without yeah. a ban. I had a friend who went through that. I write about it in the book. And it took him years and years and years of being able to get an Israeli citizenship so he and his wife could stay together. 
They couldn't even get an engagement because right. he needed a permit to go visit her and she wasn't forbidden from visiting the West Bank. And, <laughs> you know. I, uh, this is, this is uh, you know, the, the uh, only democracy in the Middle East. You right. Know? And even after so. they got married, you know, he couldn't, you know, they, they, could, they, they couldn't stay together in the same house for years. Wow. Wow. So. Wow. I want to talk a little bit about the process of you deciding because you, you are an accomplished scientist. I mean, you're, you're, you know, a physicist and, and, uh, uh, you know, a physics professor and what, what makes you make that change? Um, I always like to read and well, since I was a kid and, um, one of the things that drove me into science initially, I, I was curious about science. I liked science too. And I read a lot about science, mm -hmm. but one of the things that drove us there is the educational system of splitting, a, um, a science track from a humanities track in high school. Mm -hmm. And yeah. since the kids who have got higher grades automatically get pushed into science. Um, right. And I think that's a remnant of the thinking in the Arab world that's, or in the colonized world in general that says, mm -hmm. well, the reason our colonizers were able to win for so many years and colonize us is their technological strength. So if we study science and technology and we get as good as them, we could be as good as them. And that's a whole misreading yeah. of history and, and how the world works. It's not only advances in science right. that are important. Um, so I realized that after working in science for so many years, because part of my motivation for working in science, I wanted to change the world. I wanted to discover alternative energy sources or do something. But guess what? The universities in 1990 in America did not have much programs about alternative energy. Solar energy was a bad word. It was all geared to generate jobs yeah. for the existing industries, which are, you know. Um, so there's... Um, I found out that the way science worked, if I really wanted to be successful in changing the world, I had to know a lot more than science. I had to be, um, know other skills, organizational skills, business skills, so on and so forth. So ultimately I decided that what I really wanted to do is write. And that story was a very important story for me to tell. I had a few other ideas for books I want to write in the future. And, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, simultaneously over the last 10 years doing science in America has become extremely difficult a lot of politics on the DC level you know in Congress about funding and budget cuts and, and uh, you know fiscal cliffs okay. and all that stuff and that turned me off mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. suddenly I was spending 80% of my time following up what's going on in DC and writing reports and writing proposals and dealing with sudden shortages of funding because of some fiscal cliff in DC, some political game. So in order to keep my students 
employed studying science, I had to keep a flow of money, and that was getting harder and harder. Trump, uh, whatever you think about him, he was not a big fan of science. Um, science funding was cut drastically yeah. or geared towards the military. And so I was like, I'm not going to do this mm-hmm. anymore. I, I'm going to take a break and do something I really want to, I was thinking about doing for many years. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm definitely happy you wrote the, you wrote the book. Um, how hard was it for you? Uh, you know, um, did you, well, let me ask you this first. Did you write other things before this book, things that were not published, other than your journal? I, I mean, I wrote where, an where article you... in Electronic Intifada in 2004 about one of my trips. Oh, and yeah. that yeah. became chapter 15. <laughs> okay. Chapter 15 is better okay. written. I and added, I, you know, if you can dig up the original article, it's called Stranger in My Own Land. Uh-huh. Okay. And interesting from 2004 how 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 uh was there any difficulty in learning because it's a it's a it's a different uh it's a different field it's a Um, different skill you know becoming an becoming an author and deciding to go that track so we know why you left one field but and going to the other but how let me tell you how i did it is it or was it difficult Um, I'm I'm usually slow and deliberate about doing things. You know, some people could not, you know, could switch things at a whim. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me 10 years of planning. So it was a big move. Oh, wow. um, you know, I was abandoning sure. basically everything that I spent my whole life building to go into a completely new direction mm-hmm. where the, the risk for failure is really high. And... So it took me 10 years of, I kept a separate diary for that, writing, motivating things for myself to encourage me to make that transition. Um, Five years before I quit my job, I started um, reading a lot, concentrating more. I used to like reading history for a while. I switched to reading just literature, you know, famous works of literature, things that maybe I should have read earlier, but I just didn't encounter in the intellectual desert that was Palestine in the 1980s. And um, so I did a lot of reading during that period. And then finally, when, you know, the scariest moment when I went to talk to the retirement officer at the university, I took an early retirement so I could keep some of the benefits Mm -hmm. while doing this. And okay. he asked me, how do you feel? And I'm like, well, I feel I'm standing at the edge of a cliff. I'm about to jump. <laughs> That's how it felt. But oh, I'm sure. you yeah. know what? Financially, yeah. um, I had money saved for that purpose. I knew exactly how many years I could go. I knew what my spending was. If you're disciplined mm-hmm. and you budget well, it's not a cliff. It's just a ramp. It's a smooth glide. Yeah. And you can control how fast or how slow you're gliding. Uh, My standard of living didn't go down, you know, appreciably. I'm still doing things I like to do. And, you know, COVID took Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a bunch out of everybody's social lives. But, you know, I'm 
doing significantly well for someone who's been out of work with no steady income for like four years. Yeah. It's been yeah, that, it's been long. that long. Oh, it's been four years. Okay. I, I quit okay. in 2019 in April, last day of April. So month and a half. Yeah. <laughs> what is, is there anything that you would do differently? Um, no. If you were to give somebody else some I, advice. I mean, I, 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 right now I'm learning everything as I go along. I, I had to learn how to, after writing the book, I had to learn how to publish it, how to market it, how to connect with people, how to do interviews, mm -hmm. what to say in a book talk. <laughs> and yeah. all, all this yeah. is new to me. Um, and I'm loving every minute of it sure. because it's like an adventure. Sure. It's like being a child again. And I'm redoing my own thing, reshaping yeah. my world in my own way. This is empowerment. This is what I'm talking yeah. about. And I think you're doing it too, Nader, right? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're everybody, every, I always say that we all have to do what we can with what we right. know how to do. And, you know, so, but I, you know, I, I just want to share the stories of uh, Palestinians and not just Palestinians, honestly, but, you know, anyone really that um, is, is going through a, a struggle. Um, uh, it doesn't have to be Palestinian, but also the voices of pro-Palestinian people. Um, because I, I, it's really for, honestly, first and foremost, it's for myself. I'm, I'm very curious as to why people do things and what they have to offer and why they choose to offer it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, uh, uh, happy that you're here. I'm, I'm really, I'm proud. I'm proud of all Palestinians that do what they want to do with a purpose and you're doing that. So I'm also very proud of you. I wanted to read something. Uh, I wanted to read one of the, uh, feedbacks in the, in the book at the oh, very beginning of the book, you. some of the, uh, the praise. Um, so, uh, from Jarir Cassis, uh, from Mandawais. Uh, he says, Fugitive Dreams is one of the few books that I would, that would make a compelling read, even for those of us f familiar with the question of Palestine. I highly recommend Han Han's debut literary, literary project. And I agree with him, but I would want to add to that, that it's not just for people that are familiar with the Palestinian uh, uh, problem or the Palestinian story. It's for everybody else because you mention you talk about coming to America. You talk about the um, the American, uh, you know, meeting Americans here. You talk about um, what it's like to live here as a, a new immigrant, and I feel like that's also an American story. To be honest with you, I mean, I mean, I mean the United States is a land filled with immigrants, and. And how, you know, I think it's very important for Americans to know, number one, uh, another immigrant story. Number two, we also talk about something that, you know, politically speaking, I mean, and the facts are that, you know, America spends a lot of money on, on right. Israel. And, you know, and it's good for them to understand at least where their money is going, uh, what's happening with their money. Um, and why why there's just a little bit of an education and although they might not relate to you know some of the things that that a, Palest 
as much as a Palestinian would relate to it, because we know the story, we were we were we lived with the story. It's very important for everybody to really understand this book, especially uh, with Palestine being in the news, or we hope that it would be covered more in the mainstream media. But you know, it's it's an ongoing thing for the last you know eight nine decades uh you know 100 years yeah i just want to add to your talking about part one is basically about palestine the character is in palestine documenting what's going on there Mm -hmm. first hand Mm -hmm. the second part is all you know most of it happens in america there's periodic trips that go to palestine but the perspective now is that of a palestinian american looking at things in Palestine yeah. after he has seen how America works. Um, so the things that we take for granted, like checkpoints, suddenly when he goes to America, yeah. hey, wait a minute, I, I drove all the way from Michigan to Florida and I didn't encounter a single checkpoint. What's going on? That's when the character realizes how much oppression he was experiencing in Palestine. And so there's a lot of it is about um, America and what American money, as you said, is doing to the place over there and American diplomacy Mm -hmm. and the failed peace process, which. Yeah. Do you uh, ever plan on um, going back, going back home to to live there or is your life here now? I mean, it's here now, but you know, we're talking about. Well, the for the time being, I am, you know, my daughter is here. Your heart yeah. is where your children are. How, how old is she now? She's 13 soon. Oh, well, so this is my concern yeah. in part three. <laughs> then um, I have this one sentence that um, I'm going to paraphrase because I'm not sure I have it in front sure. of me. Now, here it is. Throughout my life, the future of Palestine was a concern and a source of worry. Suddenly, America's future disturbed me. And this is talking about things like, you know, the rise of fascism in America and, and uh, things like... Uh, right police beating uh, citizens of color and Mm -hmm. uh, mass shootings. And, and, you know, this is reality. It's almost no different than what's going on in Palestine. And when you look at it, it's the same weapons companies selling guns to mass murderers here and mass murderers there. Right. It's the same interests. So, we need as activists to be aware of that connection and to uh, make sure we enlist more than the usual suspects, the Arabs and the Palestinians. We have allies all over the world who are facing equal or similar struggles and we need to all join hands together. The environment, the the environment, the gas, the oil, and the weapons industries are also the biggest polluters. I I, want to touch on a message to the Palestinian youth, um, whether and in in you know, 
if you've given this some thought as far as uh, something to, I don't want to say give them hope, but give them maybe some guidance. Um, Palestinian youth as far as who may feel like they're trapped, you know, are uh, maybe show them how to within themselves. You know, we talked about this a little bit before, but if you could talk a little bit about uh, a little advice from you for the Palestinian youth, I'm talking about the teenagers, older teenagers, you know, as far as pursuing their dreams, given the situation that they're in. This is, um, difficult for me to um you know when i was there it was a different time it was a different era we had it easy compared to the kids that are going through what they're going through today um even the first intifada was relatively um calm people got killed um it was dangerous but it was nonviolent. And what you have right now is young children that are getting killed by raids that, you know, Israel goes into their city and kills them or kills their brothers or kills their fathers in front of them. And so I, I really don't know what to communicate. Um, in those terms, other than the fact that every life matters, that you matter. So it's very easy to lose hope in a place like that, especially with the wall. I feel suffocated every trip that I've been going back and go back every two years. And so in that way, I'm also very fortunate to have had the opportunity to live in another place, to even travel to another place. Um, and that space between my life here and my childhood there is what enabled me to heal. It takes years and decades to heal from that kind of trauma. But ultimately, you can do it. You can survive. You can succeed. You can be who you want to be. Do what you want to do. You can't give up. That's, that's the most important message. Uh, you matter. Mm. and that's right um, that's right you know i wrote down in the book after the very last trip is that people there are basically suicidal palestinians living inside the wall are slowly suicidal there if it was quiet and if the israelis weren't killing them they're killing themselves slowly with um you know, bad habits like crazy driving or um, crazy smoking yeah. or whatever. Excessive smoking. I see. I remember seeing little kids. Right. Just but they don't care because they away. think yeah. their lives don't matter. They're going to die anyways. Yeah. And that's, that's the wrong trap to fall into. Don't fall into that trap. Your life matters. Yeah. You can be the leader that's going to change the world. You could be the, the, the most important contribution uh, to be made and don't throw your lives away.
think carefully about what you want to do with your life and what you want to accomplish. Definitely, that's an excellent, excellent message. Uh, let me ask you: What are your future plans? What 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 happens from? You wrote the book. You you wrote the book. It's a it's a it's a great book. Um, I'm actually going to read it again. Uh, you know, I read this. I, it's a big book. I mean, there's a, you cover a yeah. You cover a lot in here. It's a big book, and I read this in three, maybe three and a half wow. days. Let's say four days. Let's say four days. And I'll be honest, you know, my my sister-in-law, Wendy, she wrote to, uh, we have this group chat on, on WhatsApp, and she recommended your book. So I didn't hear about this. I didn't hear about you until she mentioned this just a few, maybe three, four months ago, something like that. And uh, I, I got it right away and I read it and I couldn't put it down. So, you know, I encourage everybody to read it. Um, you're going to get so much out of it. It's, it's, and I think you're going to find some places where you, you know, I, I read a few things in there where I said, Oh, that's interesting perspective. And one that, you know, I really haven't, you know, heard it. Like I said, in the beginning of this uh, episode, you know, all, every, every good book about anything brings, you know, uh, its own, you know, nugget, so to speak. There's always a nugget there, and you have so many in this book. I really appreciate you writing it, but I just want to know what comes next. Is there a Fugitive Dreams part? Uh, I, I had um, part two, I have or is actually it? No. two um, other manuscripts written. One of them is almost polished, uh, ready to go to a publisher. The other one needs a lot more work. Uh, the one that's polished is a love story. And the one that okay. needs more work is um, uh, the motivational essays that I told you about writing to myself about. Yeah, it's all about yeah. empowerment and motivation and being who you want to be. And I can see that forming into a book, but it still needs a lot of work. But out of Fugitive Dreams, too, um, I have a lot of characters in here. And I have a lot of characters that I cut out that I didn't include necessarily, but I'm thinking to take okay. several of those characters and go more in depth into their lives. Uh, um, this will be mostly fictional short stories, you know, fictionalized sure. because, okay. you know, um, I'm going to imagine going yeah. into their heads and, um, yeah, that, that's, that's actually sort of like yeah, a sequel with independent, but, you know, uh, yeah, snapshots yeah. of different lives of yeah. Palestinians, uh, for example, I, there's a story about this Armenian piano teacher um, mm -hmm. who's Palestinian. He's living there and he uh, gets beaten during the first intifada, both by the soldiers and by the Shabab. Because the Shabab see oh. his uh, European looking features, think he's Israeli, beat him up. <laughs> and the Israelis know he's Palestinian, they beat him up. <laughs> but you know they stories jumped, like they that. jumped the gun <laughs> yeah i'm only yeah, giving out yeah, one no, well whatever yeah whatever whatever you write i will read my friend the the uh you've had some speaking engagements and you have some coming oh coming um, up. please uh join Correct. me on saturday this saturday the march 18th 
at the American Palestinian Women's Association. They're having a great show in G George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And uh, there's going to be food and a bazaar and music and Dabke show. Um, and I think Palestinian fashion show too. And I'm going to have a table there. I'll be signing books so you could buy your copy if you don't have it. And if you have it, bring it with you and I'll sign it. Stop by to say hi. Yeah. If you have a signed copy. I got, a, I got another one. I got another one that is unsigned. I have one that's I, you, signed, but I have okay, one that Okay, bring it with you and stop so, by. And, so, yeah. You'll meet my daughter. I will try to stop. Yeah. Oh, that'll be, that'll be nice. That'll be nice. Um, also, how can people uh, buy the book? Uh, you can buy it from any bookstore. Um, you, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and uh, those kinds of places. But also, um, if you take the ISBN number, uh, which is available on uh, my website or on, you know, you can go to the Amazon site. You can order it from any. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll put those, you I'll could put order those it on from here any too. Bookstore. Yeah. Um, I think Middle East Books and More has it on their website. A uh, bunch of other places also are selling it online. And it's available worldwide. So if you're watching this show from outside of USA, check your bookstores um uh if you have an amazon in your country they definitely have it yeah any any uh chance of it getting translated to other i'd languages? love to i just don't have the time to do the translation to arabic so if anyone is interested like especially publishers who have the capacity to do it um i'm interested in talking to them um i started translating some of my social media posts so I went as far as translating the title into Arabic. So now I have a title. Yeah, yeah. It's called Al-Ahlam al-Sharida Yawmiyyat al-Ihtilal wa nidal Oh, wow. Well, nice. The, the, uh, yeah, I think it's a very important book to have in actually several different languages, uh, especially Arabic and Hebrew. And, Hebrew. and uh, maybe nice. Spanish, and Hebrew, Chinese. That would be nice. Spanish. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to at some point have yeah. it translated because... It's a story that not too many people outside of Palestine know. Um, for example, exactly. um, the stuff exactly. about the bridge on chapter five, I've never seen it in print. Anything about the Palestinian experience at the bridge, nobody writes about it, nobody talks about it, especially because it's so traumatic from a cultural yeah. point and of we're view. We're talking about the bridge... We're talking about the bridge right. over the Jordan River, just so people know. And that's the normal way Jordan. for Palestinians yeah. to travel outside of the West Bank and go to the outside world. For And throughout the 70s and 80s, we were subjected to systematic uh, harassment that included everyone in the family down to the youngest children. And nobody ever talks about it. And how can we expect other people in other countries to know how oppressive the system we are living in is if we don't tell them how oppressive it is. Well, you're absolutely right. All right. So uh, one last thing before we close, do you have a, 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 a section from your book that you would like to read for us? Well, let's read the first page. Mid-1970s, three years old, 
My house was my castle where I played under the loving, caring eyes of my mom and grandma. Stay away from the windows or you may get a stray bullet. Mom's voice anxiously peeled, delivering one of my earliest lessons in life. Outside, the streets were in turmoil, spilling the sound of gunfire and the smell of burning tires and tear gas into the house. A world of borders, and I was born on the wrong side. Of course I peeked when I could, wondering what a stray bullet looked like. School children of the same age as my siblings poured out of the school across the hill, packing the streets. I could hear them chanting slogans while the soldiers fired tear gas and warning shots. All of a sudden, the tone changed. For the first time in my life, I heard the sound of a loudspeaker. Army jeeps roamed the town, blurting orders to stay indoors or risk getting shot. My parents hurried to close the window shades. We stayed indoors for several days. Then came the banging on the door. Loud, continuous banging with the butt of a rifle. I thought the door would break. Through the cracks in the blinds, I saw the soldiers strutting on our patio. What do they want from us? Will they search the house? Are they looking for children? Soldiers don't like children. I see them shooting at the older kids every day. Now they are right outside our house, so they must be here to get me. With this incontrovertible logic of a three-year-old, I quickly scampered and hid between my dad's desk and the wall. Another crack, which I could barely squeeze myself. There, I would be safe from those big, monstrous soldiers. Breathless, I stayed, as long as I could hear the thuds of their boots and the jangles of their guns. So that wow. is my attempt to capture what a three-year-old perceives soldiers coming to search yeah. their house after a protest during a curfew yeah which you know if you if you open the news to any palestinian spokesperson they talk about curfews a lot mm. in america a curfew means mm. you're a kid you don't stay out after 10 p.m americans don't know what a curfew yeah. is you have to spell it out to them yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember uh, the curfews uh, every now and then. You know the the jeeps coming by with their the you know the Israelis coming by in their in their jeeps with the loudspeakers and Menachtajawal and you know and you know yeah I I remember that you know they would come by and they would through the loudspeakers say you know curfew until further notice and. Um, and for me, as a Palestinian American, as somebody that was just arriving to, hey, look, when I when I first landed in Tel Aviv in in that airport, in the Ben Gurion airport, as a ten year old, getting out of the plane and seeing armed soldiers, you know, in, in the on the runway, I thought I thought, you know, I didn't see that right. in America. I never saw that before. And so I'm arriving, I'm like, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. This is like in the movies, you know, that's what I, that's what in my head, this is like, you know, watching, uh, 
you know, one of these war movies. I've never seen that before. And I wanted to go up and actually touch, like, the, the soldier's M16. You know, they, like, push, hey, hey, get away from here. My father just grabbing me. He's like, oh, you can't go there, you know. And so it was a rude awakening. They're like, why would you bring me here? <laughs> but I'm glad that they did. I'm glad that they did because uh, it's a, it, it is a beautiful country with beautiful people. And uh, look, I, uh, I want to reiterate um, how proud I am that, uh, that you made it here, that you agreed to come. And, um, you know, first, I'm proud of what you do and what you've done. I recommend to everybody to read this book, Fugitive Dreams by Ramzi Hanhan. Thank you, Ramzi, for being here today. Thank you, Nader. That was a nice chat. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope we do it again, and I hope we do it again in person. We don't live too far from each other, so I think we'll uh, have to get together and do some things uh, uh, and you know, together, whether it's on camera or off camera. Um, sure. I'll see you on thank Saturday. You, thank you once again. Inshallah. Thank you. And I hope you all enjoyed the discussion. Pick up the book, Fugitive Dreams, Chronicles of Occupation and Resistance. Um, I'll leave some links in the description below to Rumsey's uh, LinkedIn profile, where he posts photos from Palestine that go with specific passages from the book. Uh, along with his Goodreads and Amazon author pages, I'll leave links for those where you can purchase the book. I appreciate your comments, your likes, and shares, and please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. There are more future interviews lined up, and you don't want to miss them. Thanks for watching. Much love to you all, and I wish you all peace. And as always, free Palestine.